If you've been here at Redeemer for any length of time, whether a few years, a few weeks, then you've heard me say that our job is to... That, absolutely, but to show the world what God is like. To show the world what God is like. If you've been here for a long time and you don't know what I'm talking about, then you just haven't been listening. And I would encourage you to listen a little bit more clearly. In other words, if we claim to be followers of Jesus, then the way we live our lives, both individually and corporately, reflects something to the world about the nature and character of God. When people look at the church, or when they look at Christians, they're forming opinions about God. That's just true. Whether we like it or not, that's just true. They're forming opinions about God. At the meta level, the last few years have not been great for the American evangelical public persona. Large-scale abuse scandals being uncovered that were hidden for decades. Significant Christian figures being exposed as wolves. Political obsessions that confuse the good news of the kingdom with a particular political bent. If you follow the hashtag Church2, you'll see pages and pages of stories of how church leaders misuse their positions and, and the world watches. And as they watch, like I said, whether we like it or not, They form opinions about God. Now, I'm bringing all of this up to make a point. And what I first want to say is I don't believe what I just described identifies this community of faith. I really don't believe that. So this is not a sermon meant to to, to beat you all into submission in any way, shape, or form. Um, Sure, we have our struggles, and every single one of us in this room, every single one of us in this room is capable of sinning. And many of us have sinned in some pretty big ways. What I also know about the people in this room is that we do have a desire to draw nearer to God. I've seen that. I've seen that over the last few years. To know him and to reflect an undistorted picture of him into the world around us. But the point that I believe we all need to accept and start getting comfortable with is that the church is viewed with an eye of suspicion by the world around us. That's just true. And we need to grow comfortable with that. And that means that, that God is also viewed with an eye of suspicion by the world around us. But see, Jesus shared something with his disciples in John chapter 13. He described it as a new commandment. He, he, said, he said, this new commandment is that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. And then in verse 35, he says, by this, this love that you have for one another, this self-sacrificial love, this this Jesus kind of love, this cross-shaped love, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So one theologian and missionary, and I have a slide for this, Leslie Newbigin, he comments on this passage and he says, it is the love of Christ which constitutes or establishes the new community. The actual presence of the love of Jesus working itself out in the life of a community will be what identifies it as his. This will be the one essential mark of the church. It is this which will lead people to look at this strange figure of a crucified man as the source of life. And so the third commandment, which we're going to be looking at this morning, it teaches us to not take the name of the Lord our God in vain. This morning, my hope 
is to cast a vision for what that commandment is calling us to. Something that I believe with all of my heart is much more significant than simply using Jesus' name as a swear word. There's more going on here than that. And so let's take a look. So before we look at the commandment itself, I want to first examine the name. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Exodus chapter 3. And we'll be looking specifically at verses 13 through 15. But, but I want to set the stage a little bit before we jump into that particular text. Moses has already fled Egypt. He got into a little trouble. He killed a guy. People were starting to point fingers at him, and he gets out of Dodge. But Israel is still being held captive. He's in the wilderness at the same place where he will eventually receive the law from God, and he's approached by an angel, an angel. And it reads like this, starting in verse chapter, verse 1 of chapter 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight. Why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near, take off your sandals, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cries because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hiviites, and the Jebusites. Now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And so God lays out this plan for Moses, which we've been talking about over the last few weeks because we're in the Ten Commandments, so we're going to talk a lot about Moses. He lays out this plan I'm going to save my people. I've heard them. I've seen them. I know what they're going through. And then he says in verse 10, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people. God identifies Israel as his own. And his purpose is to rescue them from the oppressive hand of Israel. Pharaoh. And then what commences is this conversation between God and Moses. Verses 13 and following go like this. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel, verse 13, and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, well, what is his name? That's a good question. Who's this guy you're talking about? Who's this God that's going to, to take the people who are doing all this work for me? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent you, sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, 
the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt and I promise that I will bring you out of the affliction of Egypt. A couple of things. God identifies himself as I am who I am, which in Hebrew is the to-be verb. All it is, it's the to-be verb. And the point that God is making in this conversation that he's having is that he is an independent being. God is an independent being. The, the theological term for this is the aseity of God. And so that's your million-dollar word for the day. And this, this, this character trait of God, and, and, and as we go into the Apostles' Creed in the next few weeks, we're going to be digging into the character of God. We're going to be talking about some of these attributes of God. We're going to be talking about the aseity of God. But, but what's really incredible about this particular attribute is that it literally distinguishes him from literally everything. Because every other thing, not just being, every other thing that exists in all of creation is dependent but God is independent, the aseity of God. He then says in verse 15 that Moses is to tell the people of Israel that I am, which is translated as Lord in your Bibles with all capital letters, is the one who is sending him. He also identifies himself as the I am, the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which is significant because what he's doing here is that he is connecting this enslaved generation in Egypt to the historic founding of Israel. He's linking this people to their own history. He's saying, that God, the one who, who was gracious to Abraham and kind to Isaac and, and faithful to Jacob, is the same God who's showing up for you now. The same God who's showing up for you now. The same good and gracious God who dealt with your fathers is dealing with you. And this name, I am, or Lord, is the covenant name of God. And it appears over 6,500 times in the Old Testament. If you want to dig into a little bit more about this name, I would highly recommend the Bible project on the name of God, the name of the Lord. It's a great video. It's about four or five minutes. It gives a little um, sort of just kind of broad brushstrokes about the point of this name. But, but, but the point for this morning, this covenant name of God is a name that, one, it identifies who God is as the only self-existent being. He does not depend on anyone or anything. He simply is. Second thing is that this name links this enslaved people of Israel to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which means, and this is, this is what's important, it means that they are participants in the promise that was given by God when he bound himself to them. So they are members of the covenant, participants in the promises of God, that they will be a great nation and that they will be the means by which all the families of the earth will be blessed. But there's something special about this generation. If, if you want to, you don't have to, but if you turn forward a page or two to Exodus 6, it says in verse 2, I am the Lord, all capital letters. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. And so what we're seeing is that the covenant made with Abraham, 
Isaac and Jacob is now being built upon in and through the people of Israel. And this is where it gets really cool. If you turn with me to Numbers chapter 6, which is the fourth book of the Bible, there's a passage that sounds familiar, and I have a slide for it, so if you don't feel like flipping around, that's fine too. I have a slide. It says, The Lord, Yahweh, spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his son, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, and, and, and I think we all probably know this, if you've hung around church for any length of time, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And then in verse 27, it says this. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. The point is that this covenant name, Yahweh, or I am, not only tells us something about who God is, and it links this generation to the promises given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but it is the name by which God's people are now identified. Yahweh is the name by which God's people are now identified. If, if, to illustrate this a little bit, if you're a fan of the Yankees, you might put on a Yankees hat or a Yankees t-shirt. And when you do, like the Burzons often do, you're telling the world where your athletic allegiance lies. And if you do that at Fenway Park, you're now going to become a martyr of the New York Yankees. All that to say, the name of God identifies his people as belonging to him, and it distinguishes them from the rest of the world. But it also, if you remember the prologue to the Ten Commandments, it is the name by which they were brought out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. It is God's saving name. So the name of God identifies a people as belonging to them. It distinguishes them from every other nation on the earth, and it is the name by which they were brought out of Egypt, the name by which they were saved. Which brings us to the third commandment. In Exodus chapter 20, Verse 7. To recap a little bit, the Ten Commandments, as we've talked about, are not the way in which the people of God are saved or redeemed. That's already taken place. Remember, they were already brought out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Rather, these commandments are meant to paint a picture of what the saved or redeemed life ought to look like. It's a call to holiness, which reveals something about the nature and character of God. In fact, it says in Leviticus, the third book of the Bible, it says, For I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, right? The one who saves, capital L-O-R-D, to be your God. You shall therefore be holy because I am holy. In other words, I saved you. Now, I want you to show the world what I'm like, and keeping this commandments, these commandments will do that. And not only will they do that, but you'll be better off for it. Why? Because following the law is what freedom looks like. Remember, the law, while it might seem to be a restraint, is actually the pathway to freedom. And it identifies God's people as belonging to him because now they're reflecting who God is. As they live in holiness and faithfulness, 
to both God and neighbor, because you'll see the, the Ten Commandments are kind of structured that way, like love God and love neighbor, people are going to start to catch a glimpse of what God is like. And so this particular commandment, there's two parts to the command. It says this in verse 7, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So the first is that the first part of the command is you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And then the second part, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes the name in vain. So there's the command, and then there's the consequences for violating this command. Let's look at the first part. We've already talked about the significance of the name, of Yahweh, of capital L-O-R-D, that we find over 6,500 times in the Bible. But now I want to look at two other words that we need to wrestle with a bit if we're going to understand exactly what this command is forbidding. Right? If we don't understand the command, then we don't know what we're not supposed to do. Right? And that, that's actually been a problem throughout church history and, and particularly evangelical history. The first word is take. The Hebrew word is nasa, and, and, and it has a wide range of meaning. This term can mean to lift up. When I was in seminary, the way I remembered this word is, is NASA lifts rockets to the sky. Right? That's how I remembered it. It can also mean to pronounce it can mean to hold, bear, or carry. It can also mean to bring. Now, one scholar, Carmen Joy Imes, has done an enormous amount of work on this particular word, and she wrote a book about it called Bearing God's Name, Why Sinai Still Matters. If you like reading theology, if you like reading biblical studies, this is a very accessible book that I would strongly encourage by uh, Carmen Joy Imes. The conclusion she draws is that this term is best understood as carry, bear, or lift up. And the reason why she draws that conclusion is because most of the time that this word is used in the Old Testament, it's about lifting something up. It's about carrying something. To nasa, the name of the Lord, is to carry or bear the name of the Lord in the way we live our lives. But there's more reasons why this word means what I'm arguing it means. Daniel Block says this, and I have a slide for this. He says, he's another Old Testament scholar, he says, the idea of taking a name is an idiom that derives from the ancient practice of branding slaves with the name of their owner. To bear the name of Yahweh means to claim him as one's owner and to accept the role of representing him. To accept the role of representing him. So what's the point? When God commands Israel to not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, what he is saying is do not carry or bear my name in vain. Do not represent my name in vain. If you're a Yankees fan, you better be a Yankees fan through the years where they're not making the playoffs also. Or you're bearing the name in vain. You can't just be a Yankees fan today. They're still doing well, right? That really messed up my point. What this verse is not saying, this is not a verse about using God's name as a swear word. It's just not. It's not about accidentally saying, oh my God. I'm not saying we should do those things. But what this verse is getting at is actually a way bigger deal than that. Like a way bigger deal. The next word is vain. And, and in this context, it simply means false or empty. In other words, the command is calling Israel to live in a manner that does not misrepresent who God is. It doesn't present 
a false or empty picture of God. So as the people of God, talking about us now, we bear the name of God, which means when the world looks at us, they are getting as close to a picture of what God is or who God is that is possible on this side of heaven. This is why every time an evangelical leader is in the news for some sort of scandal, it's so upsetting because the world is getting a distorted or broken picture of who God is. The question that we need to wrestle with is if the picture we're putting out to the world accurately represents the nature and character of who God is or if we're just putting forth a distortion. Are we putting forth a distortion? The greatest command is to love God with all our heart, soul, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves, then the way we answer that question is by looking at whether or not our lives are marked by love or by some other thing. How are we known? A couple of examples that are maybe a little bit more low level. In our neighborhoods or on our blocks, are we known for our love for God and neighbor or are we known for being the house that gets mad at kids when they walk across our lawn? I just worked really hard on my lawn yesterday. I'm hoping the kids walk on it, but if they do, what am I going to do? I know Pete works hard on his lawn too. In our families, are we known for love for God and neighbor, or are we known for being difficult, unapproachable, inflexible? For those of you in middle and high school, are are you known for your love for God and neighbor, or are you seen as, as a bully or someone who gossips and can't be trusted with information? On social media, are we known for our love for God and neighbor or are pages filled with political rants and mocking words towards those we disagree with? Who do people see when they look at us? Now, what I'm not saying is that we need to quote more Bible verses. I'm not saying we need to put Christian bumper stickers on our cars. What I read at the beginning of our time this morning are the words of Jesus from John 13. All people will know that you are my disciples, what? You have love for one another. Tangible, self-giving love that reflects the cross of Jesus Christ. They will know we are Christians by the love we have for one another. Not by the Bible verses that we quote. Not by the bumper stickers on our car. Not by our political affiliations. No, that's not how they're going to get a clue of who God is. They're going to get to know God and what he's like as they observe our life, as they peer over the fence and see, is this a community marked by love or is this a community marked by everything other than that? But in the same way, not but, but in the same way the scriptures speak about God being love, God is also called holy, holy, holy. This means that we are called to live lives of sacrificial love and compassion and end lives of holiness. Our actions and our character also ought to reflect the person and work of Christ. Our sexual ethics, how we speak and engage with others, what we consume with our eyes. All of these things, our love, our holiness, or lack thereof on both ends, 
show something to the world about who God is. That's just true. We can say that's not fair. I'm not the evangelical leader who, who fell into horrific amounts of sin. They shouldn't, well, they, they do though. I don't know what to say. I don't think it's fair either. But this is the world we live in and we need to accept that fact, which means we need to take care to watch our lives, to watch one another's lives. That's what the church is, right? It's this, it's this body of Christ, it's this community of faith that challenges one another, pushes one another, that calls one another out on our stuff so that we might be conformed into the image of Christ, so that when people take a look, they say, okay, there's, there's a brokenness there, but there's a faithfulness there. This isn't a call to be morally perfect. It's a calling to be faithful. It's a calling to represent God in how we live our lives. That means like when we do mess up, we apologize. We're humble. We let people know that, yeah, I did. I, I dropped the ball there. We don't, we don't try to save face. And we're going to talk about that in a few weeks when we talk about bearing false witness. I think I gave that one to you, Pete. We don't misrepresent ourselves. We don't pretend to be something we're not. Let's take a look at the New Testament a little bit. Turn me to Romans chapter 13. If you don't know where that is, the New Testament goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then you have Acts, and then you have Romans, and chapter 13 is toward the end of the book. I'm going to read through verses 8 through 10. It says this. That's our third point. We're moving pretty well. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. And check this out. He starts quoting the Ten Commandments. How about that? For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time, the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us than we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provisions for the flesh to gratify its desires. A couple of things. I was only supposed to read the first half of that and then I was going to read the second half, but I read it all. Paul says that the only thing we owe to one another, the only thing we owe to one another is love. It's love. And it's that sacrificial cross-shaped love. And that when we do this, when we, when we give that love to one another, it says we fulfill the law. When we give that love to one another, we fulfill the law. Which law? The commandments. Paul's echoing the words of Jesus, and he says that all the commandments are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul then further defines this sort of love. It's a love that does no wrong to a neighbor. It does no wrong to a neighbor, but there's more, right? We read through verses 11 through 14. It says that we're drawing near to the day when we will see God face to face. That means... 
that we need to take seriously to remove these works of darkness from our lives. Those of us who call ourselves members of God's church, followers of Jesus, we are called to live in a manner that reflects the character and nature of who we claim to belong to. Verse 13 tells us that our sexuality ought to reflect who God is, that our use of alcohol must reflect who God is, that how we relate to one another ought to reflect who God is. Now we're going to get into some of this stuff as we dig further into the commandments over the coming months, which means, as I said, I think last week, that we're going to feel the finger of God right in our chest, kind of pointing at us. And, and that's not me doing it. That's God. I'm, 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 because I'm, I'm with you. I've, I've experienced sin and I've, I've sinned and I've messed up and, and, and I know where God is, is shaping me and molding me. And, and we, need to, we need to allow ourselves, we need to be humble enough to allow the word of God to penetrate our hearts and change us. We have to. We have to. Or else we're guilty of sin. Like, uh, that's really the option. Right? We either allow the word of God through the power of the spirit to change us or we're arrogant and prideful and we're just sinning. The ultimate point that Paul is driving toward, though, in this particular passage is that if we claim the name of Christ, then he says in verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. In the same way we put on a suit or a dress if we're going to a special event, we are to clothe ourselves in the beauty and wonder of Jesus. For some of us, in fact, for all of us, that probably means taking off some of those older ratty clothes that we're just clinging to and insisting upon keeping in our closets or in our drawers. And, and, and I'm either talking spiritually or I'm talking literally, and maybe you've got to get rid of some stuff. That's Maybe your wife's kind of like saying, like, you've got to get rid of this shirt. That's between you guys. There's a twofold thing going on here. First, Paul is telling us to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, envelop yourselves in the things that draw you nearer to God. Meditate on the gospel. Spend time in prayer, in silence and solitude. Be about the mission of God, loving others caring for them, using your words to build one another up rather than tear one another down. Represent him in everything you do, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we do it all to the glory of God. Listen to some of those sermons from the last series where we talked about spiritual formation and we wrestled with what it means to draw near to God and what it looks like and some actual practices that we can fold into our lives to draw us near to God. The second thing in this particular passage is that he warns to make no provision for the flesh, to gratify its desires. The, the Net Bible translated as make no provision to the flesh to arouse its desires. Here's the point. We belong to Christ. We bear his name. And this means that we must be careful to not expose ourselves to things that might cause us to bear his name in vain or falsely. I think what many of us are inclined to do when we hear words like flesh or desire in the scripture is to automatically associate it with something sexual. And while there's truth there, there's more to flesh than lust. 
The flesh comes out in our desire for power and position. It comes out in our desire for more money or more stuff. It comes out in our desire to be perceived in a certain way. And and the question we need to be wrestling with is, do my habits draw me near to Christ so that I'm becoming more and more like him, little by little manifesting the fruits of the Spirit, things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The Bible doesn't say, and we talked about this when when we were in the the spiritual formation series, the Bible doesn't say, like, do the, the, the work, the fruits of the Spirit. It says that that's going to happen. So it's not like, oh, here's this list. Let me work really hard at being patient. Let me work really hard at having self-control. No, no, no. Let me draw near to Christ, and these things are going to start to show up in your life. And then you're going to kind of be like, like I've noticed this in my life. I've noticed that, that 10 years ago on the parkway versus today on the parkway, I'm a very different person. I am for the better. Like, I don't, I don't lose it as quickly. I, I still sometimes lose it. But I don't lose it as quickly. I'm just like, oh, I'm like, and even Deanna was like, she's like, oh, that was good, John. I was like, oh, thanks. Shucks. It just kind of happened. I wasn't like, I'm going to not yell at people on the road today. That's not what I did. I, I, I promise you, that's not what I did. It just started happening. But when that stuff starts happening in our lives, People start to see what God is like. The other thing that we have to wrestle with, though, do my habits arouse the works of the flesh? Things like sexual immorality, impurity, idolatry, hatred, conflict, jealousy, fits of anger. Who or what do people see when they look at our life? Who or what do people see when they look at our life? The second part of the commandment says that the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. The scriptures have some harsh things to say about those who misrepresent God. Paul writes letters to churches, to people who claim to be followers of Jesus, and in those letters he tells them that if they claim to be redeemed and free, yet live unrepentantly as though they are still enslaved, they will have no part with Christ. They bear his name in vain. This doesn't mean that like, oh man, I sinned. This is, I don't care. This is different, right? This isn't, I messed up, I've confessed it to God, I've made it right with whomever I sinned against, I am, I am clothed in the righteousness of Christ. No, no, this is, this is, I'm sinning and I don't care that I'm sinning. In fact, I'm going to continue sinning because it doesn't matter. There's two different postures there, right? One recognizes that we are saints who speak with the accent of the sinner, and then the other one is a posture that says, I'm a sinner, but I'm going to pretend to be a saint, just so other people think I'm okay, but I'm going to keep going my own way. Because he's writing to churches, right? Those are two different things. And this is where the good news comes in, Redeemer. Yahweh placed his name upon the people of Israel. The high priest wore a plate on his forehead, with the words, holy to Yahweh. But the story of Israel reveals time and time again that the name of God was carried in vain. They did not have no other gods before Yahweh. They did not refrain from making graven images. They did not keep themselves pure, and they did not bless the nations. But the thing about Israel 
is that there was always a remnant, this small number of faithful ones. And as the years went on, that number just grew smaller and smaller until it was whittled down to a child born in a manger in Bethlehem, the faithful Israelite, who, because he was in the form of God, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he made himself nothing. Taking on the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, check this out, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him what? The name that is above every name. Why? So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is why Peter can say in Acts chapter 4 that there is salvation in no one else For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The only one who faithfully carried the name of Yahweh was God himself in the person and work of King Jesus. And those of us, here's where the good news gets even better, who have entrusted ourselves to him because of what he accomplished through his life, death, and resurrection, we now bear that name. Talked about this multiple times over the last few years, that when we put our faith and trust in Christ, we are brought into union with Jesus, adopted into his family, bearing his name. He's our older brother. And then, now, we are called to live in light of the name we bear, faithfully loving both God and neighbor, possessing the mind of Christ and demonstrating to the world what God is like as a community marked by the cross, marked by love. And check this out. It's the last thing I have to say. The ushers have been standing so patiently waiting to hand out communion you look at Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 through 5, it says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed. I mean, that sounds good. Nothing accursed. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face. And check this out. Verse 4. And his name will be on their foreheads. And night 
will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. There is a day coming when all that is unseen will be made clear. We will see God face to face, and his name will be branded on our foreheads for all eternity. We are his. We are his. In the meantime, in the power of the Holy Spirit, we are called to continue sharing together in the life of Christ by loving God and loving neighbor so that the world might catch a glimpse of what he's like and turn to him in faith. That's good news, Redeemer. That's good news. Let's go to the Lord. Father in heaven, we love you with all of our hearts. We thank you that we bear your name. We bear your name because your son Jesus rescued us from sin and from death and freed us so that we might walk in newness of life. And I pray that we would do that, Lord. I pray that we would continue doing that. I pray for our church, God. Let us be a community of faith marked by love, marked by holiness, so that others might come to know you, Lord, as they look upon us. Lord, it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.